5. Revelation chapter 5. Uh, continuing our study here through Revelation. Once again, if you didn't get a sheet, we got sheets back there. Uh, same sheet as last week. Chapters 4 and 5 are on the same, same sheet. So Lord willing, time willing, we'll do chapter 5 tonight. And uh, we'll continue our study here through Revelation. Let's do the smart thing. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We just ask for your blessing just upon the message and the service, Lord, to be for you and your glory, Lord. Um, just as always, Lord, you teach. We listen through your spirit, and we just pray that you go before us in your name. Amen. Now, in Revelation here, we've been talking about how the key verse, I shouldn't say the key verse necessarily, the outline in the book of Revelation is found in Revelation 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. We talked about the things which you have seen with chapter 1, the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things that will take place after this is chapter 4 on. Now, most of the time when we think of the book of Revelation, we think of hellfire, brimstone, and judgment. Well, that starts next week in Revelation chapter 6. We're still building up to this point. What we did here is Revelation 1 was kind of an introduction where John received the vision of the book of Revelation. We talked about how Revelation is the unveiling of who Jesus is. If you really want an understanding of who Jesus is, study the book of Revelation. The Gospels give a great picture of Christ, but Revelation gives the full picture of who Jesus is. Chapters 2 and 3... We talked about how were the letters to the seven churches and how those represented real churches during John's time, but also represented churches that are still today and that we can learn from these churches, the problems they had, and how we can learn from it. Well, Revelation 4 got us finally into the heavenly scene. And we talked about heaven last week in Revelation 4 and the heavenly realm that was going on and what God was doing up there in heaven and preparing for this and preparing for what was coming. Well, in Revelation 5, we continue this heavenly picture and Revelation 5 is our last stepping stone before the judgment begins in Revelation chapter 6. The purpose of Revelation 5 is it proves to us that Jesus is the only one that can judge the world. He's the only one that can save the world. And why is he returning in the second coming of Christ? That's what Revelation chapter 5 is. And I, don't, I think we may have been out of sheets back there, and I can make some more next week. But one of the first sheets we handed out at the beginning of the book of Revelation was that sheet that talks about the difference between the second coming and the rapture. And we'll probably start referring to that a little little bit here tonight and especially next week too. So without much further ado, let's jump into Revelation 5 and see what God has to say. It says in verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. So what's going on here? First off, what is this title deed here? You see this verse 1 of chapter 5 here, this idea of this scroll written inside and on the back. We have to figure out what this scroll is because this scroll is the key thing here that's going on in Revelation 5. Now, if you look at your notes there, we put title deed to the earth. That's my personal opinion. Now, as I always say here, it's my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. There's other opinions out there. Some people believe that this, this scroll is a list of all the sins and wrongs that mankind has done. And so this scroll is really just the guilty verdict, if you will. And then by this scroll being here, it's about to be opened. And this scroll being opened is the judgment coming on the world. That sounds nice too. I don't have a problem with that necessarily. Some people say the scroll represents the promise of God, this new covenant, this new promise. And for him to come down and reclaim the world and for him to set up his earthly kingdom, this is his promise to do that. 
that possible too. I like the idea of the title deed to the earth, and this is why. Because what happens here from Revelation 6 on, God's cleaning house. That's what's going on. We use this example a lot. You know, when you come and you purchase something new, you get that paper that says it's yours. And as you go into this new house, this new building, what do you do? One of the first things you do is you clean because it's now yours. You take out all the old and you start afresh with new. Well, the world needs to be cleaned up before Christ can come down here and rule and reign, which he does in the second coming of Christ. See, the thing is, we have a tendency to think that this is God's world. We sing that great hymn. This is my father's world. Well, right now at this point, you can make the case this really isn't your father's world. According to John 12, verse 31, Satan is the ruler of this world. In fact, in Corinthians, they call Satan the god of this age. So when someone ever comes up to me and says, okay, it's hard for me to believe in a god that allows all this to happen. Hard for me to believe in a God where little babies get sick, where tragedy happens, where, where calamity is all over the place. How can a God of love allow this to happen? One of the first things I say is, first off, this is not what God intended from the beginning. This is our result of sin. Number two, he's not in charge right now. Now, some people say, well, wait a second, God's not in charge? Now, don't take that the way it sounds. He's still God. He's still on the throne. He's still all the omnis. He's omniscient, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent. He's still God. But what has happened is he has stepped back. And he said, fine, you want to let this world be a world of sin? I'm stepping back. I'm giving Satan here the ability to rule, if you will. And I'm going to allow him to take this world over. And you guys can see what the result and what the actions of sin is. It's not that God's hands are tied. It's not that Satan has overpowered him. It's not that way at all. God has stepped back and said, you want to let the sin rule the world? Well, let sin rule the world. Satan is the ruler of this world right now. So what happens is here in the book of Revelation, Jesus coming to return, the second coming of Christ, he's coming to take back the world. Well, the book of Revelation is him cleaning house before he takes back the world. So Satan, the Bible says, is the ruler of this world. He's the God of this age. Now, I want to stress this once again to be repetitious here. It's not that God is not powerful enough to handle this. It's not that Satan has overcome him. God has allowed this to happen because by our free will choice, we chose sin over choosing him. And so a lot of people believe this scroll written inside and on the back could be a, a title deed to the earth. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, a lot of times when they did their deeds, their title property transfers, the scrolls were written on both sides. And so a lot of people believe that that's what that picture is, is a picture of this that's coming. Because this is the beginning, once again, of judgment on the earth. Once again, in Revelation 6.1, what does he do? He opens the first seal. Well, he's now starting to judge the world. And we have to remember, one of the roles of Jesus, according to John 5.22, is Jesus is the one that does the judging. So Christ is coming back now to judge the world, and that's what we see here going on. The problem is, no one's worthy to open the scroll. This word worthy pops up four times in this chapter. And how many times have we said this? Anytime you see a word being repetitious and repeated in the Bible, take note of that because that's God's way of saying this world is, word is important. So it's important to find out who is worthy to open this. So who's worthy to do it? Well, the problem, verse 3, no one can do it. Verse 4, John's upset. No one can do it because they realize if no one can take this scroll, if no one can start the process of this, we're stuck. There's no Savior. There's no knight in shining armor. There's no one to, to start this process because no one's worthy to do it. Because even look, and I think it's important here in verse 2, my personal opinion, take it or leave it, the reason it's stressed in verse 2 that I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Well, he should be able to, right? That's a strong angel. He's not even able to do it. He's not worthy. No one is worthy to do this. No one. And that's why it's so vital to find out who is going to be the one worthy to do it. And John, verse 4, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. 
See, this is the problem that we run into. We run into this sometimes in the world of the woe is me. Who's going to save me from my problems? Who's going to help me through my difficult times? No one's there for me. No one cares. No one knows the problems I'm having at work. No one knows the problems I'm having in my marriage. No one knows the problems I'm having with my wife, my family, whatever. Life, health. God does. He's the only one that's worthy to step in and take care of anything. That's why it says in the book of 1 Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one person that can step into this situation and take care of it, and that person has to be Christ. Verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came and took the scroll of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus is the only one that can do it. And this is Christianity at its finest. Jesus is the only one that can step in and take care of these problems. By, by claiming to be a Christian... That means you are a follower of Christ. So that's what Christian means. So as a follower of Christ, you believe in the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ, what did Jesus say in John 14, 6? No one comes to the Father but by me. So by being a Christian, I believe the only person that can solve the problems of the world is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one. Just like he's the only one that can take this scroll. He's the only one that can fix it. It always fascinates me when someone claims to be a Christian... But yet they believe there are many paths to get to heaven. I don't understand that. And I don't say that to pick. I don't say that to argue. But by being a Christian, you are stating I am a follower of Christ. And a follower of Christ, Jesus himself said, I'm the only way for salvation. And what you have here in Revelation 5, 1 through 7, is this point being repeated. Jesus is the only one to take the scroll. He's the only one worthy to do this. He's the only one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can step up and fix this whole sin problem that the world has. If there was another Savior other than Jesus, we'd talk about it. There's not. Christianity is very exclusive. Now, I think it's exclusive in a good way. One of my verses I love to quote in the Bible is the simplicity of Jesus. Aren't you glad that it's so simple? I don't have to figure it out. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. That's that easy. That's not being ignorant. That's not being arrogant. That's not being rude. That's being simple. God has designed it simple. There's one way to get to heaven, and that's through Christ. Revelation 5, 1 through 7 proves that, that Christ is the only one that can do this. Let's look real quick at the description given of him. You look at here in verse um, 5. Lion of the tribe of Judah. That refers to his deity. Lion, powerful, God, the lion, tribe of Judah. It was already prophesied back in the Bible that the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. So the lion of the tribe of Judah speaks of his deity. The next one, the root of David. Root of David means he's a descendant of David. That means he's human. This is vital. This is Christianity. He is God, but yet human man, and he's the lamb that has been slain, which makes him the Savior. So he is a human, but yet God that died for the sins of the world. That's Christianity in the nutshell. And that's why it's so important you look at these terms. They all represent something. His deity, his humanity, and also him being Savior. And it's not that he's just the deity, human, Savior. Look at the strength there. Look at verse 6. Let's talk about this symbolism here. The seven horns. Anytime you see horn in the Old Testament, it always represents strength. Horn always represents strength. So what you have here is seven horns. In the Bible, seven represents completeness. So when you have seven horns, he's complete, the strength. There's nothing more powerful than him. It's complete strength. The next one there, it says the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already talked about that. If you're taking notes here, Isaiah 11, verse 2, those seven spirits are the seven spirits that represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
being on Jesus. That goes back to, once again, Isaiah 11, verse 2. You can check the reference there. So here in these verses, you have his deity, tribe of Judah, his humanity, root of David. He's the Savior, the Lamb that's been slain. He's the only one strong enough to do this, the seven horns. And he's completely full of the Spirit because he's God, the seven spirits of Isaiah 11, verse 2. He's the only one worthy to do it. There's not a question about this. And that's why these first few verses are here to show that there is no compromise. Christ is the only one worthy to take the scroll. He's the only one worthy to judge the earth. He's the only one strong enough to come back and reclaim the earth for God. He's the only one that can deal with this sin problem. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. If you could take care of your sins, we wouldn't need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He takes care of it all. He's the only one worthy to do it. And that's what we have here in the first seven verses. Any quick questions, comments about this before we move on to the next couple points here? Yeah, Megan. Well, Jesus is God. Yeah, yeah. So since Jesus is God, they're working their hand in hand. God the Father here is sending his son down to take care of it. Nope, that's, that's, no. That's good. That's good. Anybody else have anything before we move on? Real quick, I want to make a point about this, which I find absolutely fascinating. This in verse 6, as though the lamb had been slain. I don't know this for sure, but isn't it interesting that Jesus is up in heaven? I don't know about you guys. Did you not always imagine Christ? When you get up to heaven, what is Jesus going to look like? Okay. Well, we already know this. You know, this is my joke I like to share. He's going to wear white, and he always has a blue slash. I don't know why, but that's what he's going to wear. He has a nice trim beard. For some reason, we always have a nice trim beard, and his hair looks really nice. It's nice, long, and wavy. So that's what we think he's going to look like. Now, I find it fascinating. We have this beautiful picture of Christ. Well, first off, number one, Jesus probably wasn't really this white complexion. If he was Middle Eastern, he was probably more of an olive complexion. Number two, a good Jewish man, his beard was not very nice and trimmed. Pretty probably pretty long and shaggy there. And I don't know for sure if he's wearing white with the blue sash or not. I don't know where we came up with that, but that's what we always have him dressed as. But I find it fascinating that he's the lamb that was slain. Now, is it possible that through all of eternity, Jesus will carry the marks of the cross on him? I find that absolutely fascinating to me. Because we always have him pictured of not having the marks of the cross. Well, the Bible refers to him as the lamb that was slain, and John obviously saw that. It's quite possible when you get up to heaven, Christ will still carry the marks of the nails that went through his wrists through all of eternity. Now, why would he do that? To rub it into us? No, to constantly show us for all of eternity, your sin has been paid for. The price has been paid. Now, the reason I bring this up, and let's make a quick application point about this. What do we do with our scars down here on earth? We do everything we can to hide our scars. That's what we do. If someone has a horrible scar, we will do surgery to try to take care of it, or we'll wear clothes to cover up scars. Generally speaking, we try to hide our scars because, you know, we think scars are ugly or whatever. No one wants to see that. I find it fascinating that Jesus could carry the scars of the cross for our eternity because his scars were nothing he's trying to hide. He says, these scars prove to you how much I love you. Point being is this. Some of you have scars, and I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually or emotionally. You've been scarred in your life. Maybe past relationships that's failed. Maybe you feel like uh, you've been through the trials and tribulations of life, and you have this past that, that you're really trying to hide and move past. Well, I tell you this. Sometimes those scars that you tried to hide are really something the Lord says, I can use that. Lord, you can't use this. I don't want anybody to know what I was like. I don't want anybody to know what I did. I don't want anybody to know. No, sometimes those scars that you try to hide are the things that God says I can use as a witnessing tool later on in life. I always find that fascinating. And some of the best testimonies I've ever heard are where people get up and say, you know what, I'm not proud of my past. Here's the scars of what I went through in my life. And you see what Christ did in their lives and brought them then full circle to where they're at now. Wow, to God be the glory of that. So sometimes, don't hide for those scars. Those scars are there as part of your testimony of what God has done in your life. And God still uses that. So let's move on here. 
So what happens when he takes the scroll, verse 8? Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, we talked about them last week in Revelation 4, the four living creatures seem to be a picture of the cherubim from Ezekiel 1 and also seem to be a picture of, of the deity of God. If you look at your sheets there, you can flip over to the... Uh, Chapter 4, uh, other side, and we talked about the seven living creatures there at the bottom. There, You can kind of review that or go back and grab the CD or listen to it online. But verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, which we talked about them last week too in chapter 4, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now stop there for a second. I find this fascinating. When he takes the scroll, praise and worship kicks off in heaven. Because it's finally happening. Have you not had something you've looked forward to for so long, and it's finally happening? I can remember the times that Dawn and I have like flown someplace and done something. You get in the plane, you're waiting, you're exciting, you're in the runway. But it's when that plane finally takes off, you're like, okay, we're finally on the way. No turning back now. And that excitement of it's going to happen. Well, when Jesus takes this scroll, heaven realizes it's finally happening. The, the, the world is going to be judged. Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's finally going to be set right. Now think about this. What are these prayers of the saints? How many times, in verse 8, have you not prayed in your life, Lord, this is not fair. How many times in my walk with Christ have I prayed, Lord, come, return. Lord, if you want to return before this, I'm so happy. I don't know how many times I've said, Lord, just your you return. Because once you return, it's all over. It's all done. We can be taken out of here. We can be raptured. and We can have eternity. So my prayers are being put in this incense, just waiting to be released. How many times in life have you just prayed this prayer of, Lord, I can't handle this anymore. I can't do this. I can't. I'm done. What are you really praying? Lord, make it right. How many times have you prayed, Lord, I am so hurt. I am so let down by what they've said about me, what they've done to me, what's going on in my life. Lord, I'm so tired of this pain, this physicalness. What you're really praying is, Lord, set the wrongs right. Because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Your prayers have not been unanswered, even though you may think they've been unanswered. Your prayers have not been ignored. Your prayers have been stored up into this golden bowl of incense. And when Jesus takes the scroll, your prayers are let loose, and it's like your prayers are finally answered. Because by him taking the scroll, he is now setting the wrongs right. He is now moving forward. So when you sit down here in this world and you think, Lord, this is not fair. Lord, this is not right. God knows that. He knows it's not fair. He knows it's not right. Your prayers are not being ignored. They're being saved up for the day of his return there. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. What a neat little song there. He's the only one worthy to do this. We've already established that fact. No one else can do it. Why is he the unworthy? Verse 9, Because he was slain. Well, that doesn't carry enough weight, does it? How many prophets of old have been killed, have been slain? Every false religion in the world has some great leader of some type of promise that they're going to return and be resurrected, etc. And you know what? Those bodies are still sitting in the grave. So it's not the fact that necessarily he was slain, it's also the fact that he rose again. That's why we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the fact that he died, but then we also celebrate the fact that the tomb's empty. I've said out here numerous times, I can get on a cross and die for your sins. The problem is I'm not going to rise three days later. It does nothing. See, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. It's the blood of Christ. It's the sacrifice of his sins. It's only through Jesus. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. He's the only one worthy to bring us salvation. He's the only one of every tribe and tongue, people and nation. And what's, what do we get out of this? Verse 10, we get to be kings and priests. We reign with him. We'll get to that at the end of the book of Revelation, but when Jesus returns in the second coming, we as the church, the body of Christ, we get to rule alongside with Christ himself. We get to be priests and kings. Now, this is not some power trip. 
Remember last week we talked about the crowns that we get in Revelation 4. We get these crowns, and what do we do with these crowns? We lay these crowns down at the feet of Jesus. It's not a crown for me to walk around for all of eternity saying, hey, everybody, look at my crown. No, the whole point of my crown is to lay it down at the feet of Christ and say, to God, you be the glory. Christ, you be the glory. We get to reign with God. You ever think about that? What an amazing thing. And what have you done to be worthy of that? What have I done to be worthy of that? Absolutely nothing. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our works are like filthy rags. On your best day, you're still an unholy sinner. On my best day, I'm still an unholy sinner. That's why, verse 9, I have been redeemed by the blood. I can't do it on my own. God takes care of it. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Some of your translations say innumerable. That's a pretty good translation. Verse 12, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and are under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Heaven rejoices because God is worthy. That word worthy, once again, is mentioned four times here in this chapter alone. Verse 2, who's worthy? Verse 4, John's weeping because no one's worthy. Verse 9, Jesus is worthy. Verse 12, Jesus is worthy. That's the whole point of chapter 5 is to show that Christ is the only one that has the credentials to do this. The only one. No one else is, is worthy. No one else has the credentials. Only Jesus Christ himself is the one that can take this scroll which represents the beginning of judgment on the earth. He's the only one that can do this. And I think it's a fascinating thing to see this idea of praise and worship breaking out in heaven. And the reason praise and worship is breaking out in heaven is not because millions of people are about to be judged on the earth. I don't believe that in any way whatsoever. The reason praise and worship is breaking out in heaven is because finally the wrongs are going to be righted. God is a just God, the Bible says. A just God does not let sin go. Your sins and my sins are not let go. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. The punishment has been paid. Well, if someone does not accept Christ as their Savior, their sins still have to be punished. That's what the tribulation is. That's what the great white throne judgment is. Their sins are going to be punished. Now, no matter how you look at it, every sin is punished. My sins are going to be punished. They were just punished through Jesus on the cross. If I choose to reject Jesus as my Savior, my sins are going to be punished by me through all of eternity in hell. Now, that's not a God of love sending me to hell. That's a God of love that sent Jesus down to die on the cross for my sins and me being dumb and rejecting him and therefore taking the punishment of that. But it's this point of God is worthy. So what we get into next week in Revelation chapter 6 is the seals being opened. And as these seals are opened, these seals represent the different judgments that are coming upon the world. And as we've said numerous times, going back to our introduction in the book of Revelation, any time there's judgment, there's always grace. So in the midst of this judgment that's going to go on here in the book of Revelation, there's numerous examples of God during the tribulation period still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God still loves this world. Even though this world needs to be judged, even though this world needs to be cleaned out, even though this world needs to start from scratch, a new heaven, a new earth, God says, I still love everybody in it. But the judgment is coming, and Jesus, according to Revelation 5, is the only one worthy to begin this and to start this. And that's the fact that we learned here tonight, which we get into next week in Revelation 6, the actual judgment part beginning. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments here? John.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the beautiful thing is, is, is God's taking care of that. It's not like the Lord is sitting up there in heaven saying, gosh, I really wish I could reach those uh, African bushmen. I just I can't get to them. He's got it. He's taking care of it. And, and, the, and the blood of Christ covers them too. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we have the tendency to think that Jesus is American. You know, I, I love this nation and I'm so blessed where we live and to have the freedom to meet like this, but he's the God of the world. So anybody else have any final questions, comments here before we close up? Megan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what happens is that they, it depends on what it goes to it, and I'm assuming your subtext probably has some big capital letters beside it. Is that correct? Yeah. What happens is if you look in your Bible, there's two types of text. There's something called the majority text, and there's something called the NU text. The majority texts are the texts that are the older texts that they have found, which they usually get uh, King James, New King James come out of the majority text. The NU texts are the text of Greek that they have found more recently, which generally are your NIVs, etc. So what they're just saying is that there's a translation there where some of the texts seem to be saying us, the majority text, and some of the texts seem to be saying them, which is the newer text. It doesn't really bother the verse too much because let's say it says and has made them well who's the them the people that have been redeemed by the blood of every tribe tongue people and nation well who's been redeemed by every the blood of christ which is you and i which is us so it really doesn't make a difference either way so if it says them it's referring back to the them of verse nine who is still us isn't the english language wonderful and amazing so either way it's us so if it wants to say them let it say them because i'm still the us of them if that makes any sense so yeah run Yes, the last update I heard about, I believe his name was Pastor Youssef. Uh, the last update I heard about Pastor Youssef was this, um, that they are, were no longer saying um, that they were going to try him for trying to uh, proselytize Muslims into the Christian faith. They're now we're trying to bring charges of uh, rape and I believe extortion against him. But they said that there is no, if you look at the legal filing documents that were written in Farsi that have been translated, that there is actually nothing in those documents that say that they're trying him for that, that it almost seems like Iran has realized that they can't try him for what they were, so they're now changing some charges and trumping some stuff up. That's the last update I heard and that was as of yesterday afternoon. So I've not heard anything new since then. Execute him? Well, the one report I heard said that they, if they do not execute him, that sometimes not being executed is worse than being executed because they said that they could then sentence him to life in a prison camp or they could let him go and then he just has a tendency sometimes to disappear. So it is still a situation that we need to pray for. His name is Pastor Youssef over there in Iran if you haven't been following it. Um, you know, a brother in the Lord that may be uh, thousands of miles away, but he's still a brother in the Lord. Anybody else have anything here they want to say before we go ahead and close up? All right, last verse I want to share with you, and I just think this is fascinating. If you could turn to Philippians chapter 2, because we read this verse a lot, but now we get to see the fulfillment of it. Philippians chapter 2, and this is what we're going to finish with here. It says in Philippians 2, verse 5, this kind of sums up everything we talked about tonight. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. We talked about that, that he is the deity, the lion of the tribe of Judah, God, but he's also human, the root of David. Well, he came down in the form of a bondservant. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which now makes him our savior. Now just stop and think about that for one second. God took the form of a man to die. This is fascinating, unbelievable. And what, here's the great part about the verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. 
and given him the name which is above every name. That's what we just read in Revelation 5. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what happens at the end of Revelation 5. It finally happens. I tell you this, the name Jesus, for being as divisive as it is, is used so much. I'm willing to bet that tomorrow when you go to school, when you go to work, you're going to hear the name Jesus probably used about 100 times. Now, that 100 times, probably 99, if not 100 out of 100, will not be used in the proper context of what his name should be. But there's going to come a time and a place where at the name of Jesus, people will realize who he is, that he is Savior. He's the one worthy and he land that was slain. It comes full circle. And to God be the glory. He gets the glory finally at the end. And that's what sets us up then for Revelation 6 next week. So I hope you guys can make it for that. Um, that's where we really get into the heart and soul revelation of that tribulation period. And that's going to really go on from chapter 6 to really about chapter uh, 19, chapter 20. And then we'll go from there. Then. So close with the word of prayer and we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, just thankful to be here tonight. We ask for your blessing just upon us, Lord, that we may go out and be lights and witnesses for you, Lord. We have this knowledge that you are returning, that you are coming back, Lord, and, and we don't take that knowledge to puff us up, to make us more intelligent. We want to take that Go tell people about you. Lord, give us that burden to go out and spread the gospel of Christ. We know what happens. We know what's coming. We know the judgment. But help us to go to our unsaved friends and loved ones to truly be a light and a witness in all that we say and do. And Lord, also just for us. Lord, we know you're returning. We will never be worthy on our own, Lord, but we want to be worthy of you through your blood. Lord, we want those areas in our life that are weak to be made strong. Those areas in our life that are wrong, we want to be made right. Lord, you are returning. We want to look you in the eye and love you, Lord, and bow at your feet. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.